When we talk about human rights, we often focus on qualitative narratives, the tales of struggles faced by refugees, of rights denied individuals during war, of the fight for clean food and water. But undergirding all those stories are statistics, statistics that allow us to gain insight into the scope of a human rights issue or the size of a population living through particular human rights abuses. The connection between stats and human rights is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics in Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Jana Asher. Asher is an assistant professor of mathematics and statistics at Slippery Rock University. Outside of work, she's a member of the board of directors for the Pittsburgh Interfaith Evolutions Corporation, a nonprofit dedicated to spreading interfaith understanding. Her research interests include questionnaire design, survey methods, record linkage, history of stats, community-engaged education, and statistics education, as well as her work with human rights and sexual violence. Within the ASA, she's currently a member of the Committee on International Relations and the program chair for the section on survey research methods. Jana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I just, I guess, wondered if we could start the conversation with you telling us how you got interested in human rights in the first place. Ooh, all right. Well, she started with a really simple, easy question. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, uh, there was this little event on September 11th, I think it was 2001. um, And I had always been interested in, in, trying to be helpful um, within my field. Uh, I did a lot of volunteer work through the American Statistical Association um, before I started doing work on human rights. And when 9-11 happened, uh, 20 years ago over now, I wanted to know why. It was clear that there was something happening in the world that I didn't understand, and there was an anger towards the United States I didn't understand. At the same time, I had started uh, being colleagues and friends with Fritz Schuren, Uh, My advisor was Steve Feinberg, and Steve Feinberg was just starting to talk to a gentleman named uh, Dr. Patrick Ball, who was working at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he specifically was specializing in this intersection of statistics and human rights. He needed some help with a project, and at that point it was called Project X. In fact, I don't think it ever got called anything other than Project X, Um, but I ended up uh, being connected to Patrick Ball, and we started working on the data for the mysterious Project X. And through that work, um, he got to know me. And he asked me to participate in a different project, which was to prepare testimony for the trial of Slobodan Milosevic. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, uh, using data that was collected um, between February and April of 1999, after the splitting up of the former Republic of the Yugoslavia. So I worked with him on that project, and there were many, many sleepless nights (laughs) during that. And it ended up uh, resulting in a report that I was a co-author of, and things just grew from there. And I got to find out why um, the rest of the world was not so happy at the point of uh, September 11th, and I got to see a lot of, of what's going on out there. So... So that's a great origin story in terms of your engagement with this this topic. Can can you help unpack a little bit the idea of of kind of what's what's the scope of human rights mm-hmm. study 
and what is yeah. what what's the data and and then the the role of statistics within it. So I you know I'll, I'll start with a really simple that's, question. That's, that's, also that's easy. A, that's pretty easy. That's kind of. I, I gotcha. It's good. It's good. Um, it's something I thought about a lot. I actually ended up taking coursework on um, international humanitarian and human rights law as part of my graduate program because I developed this strong interest in human rights uh, through these projects I was doing with Patrick Ball. I was still a graduate student at the time. So we generally split human rights into two piles. There's political and civil human rights. And I think that's what most people think about when they think about human rights. They think about uh, the right to assembly, um, the right to speech, um, the right to life, (laughs) basic things. And that tends to be where people think of human rights abuses happening. So when you're talking about a situation, let's say, in the United States, as you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and and some of the recent understanding about social justice, that falls under the category of civil and political human rights. So data related to that could take many, many forms. You could end up doing a new data collection or you could use data that already exists. So, for example, there's concern in our country about police and the relationship between police and the African-American community. Well, there are existing data um, that are collected from the, by the police themselves. Uh, they have their police blotters and their reports. Those data can be quantified and turned into records that can be studied through statistics. Uh, in the world in general, if there's been a period where, of crimes against humanity, if there have been mass human rights violations, Uh, in an area such as Rwanda, or Sierra Leone, or East Timor, or South Africa. Typically, the response from the international community is to help form a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. Now, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is charged, typically, with finding out the story, what happened. And the goal is to uncover the truth so that healing can begin. People need to be heard. When something bad has happened to you, When your rights have been violated, part of regaining those rights for yourself and part of coming through that process and healing is the ability to tell your story. And so truth and reconciliation commissions will often do um, qualitative data collection processes where they invite people to come and tell their stories. And they typically try to be as broad as possible in collecting that information. Many of the projects that Patrick Ball has worked on and I've worked on since with Patrick Ball and without Patrick Ball have been taking those existing testimonies, quantifying them, quantifying the information, coding it, and then developing statistics to accompany the stories. So in that context, again, this is all under civil and political rights, my catchphrase is you, you need the forest and the trees. So When you look at a forest from above, like say you're in a helicopter, you can take a snapshot of the entire forest. And to me, that's what the statistics provides. It provides an understanding of the of the patterns of violence, the patterns of uh, human rights violations that have happened over time, happened over space in a particular conflict or in a particular political situation. But you also need the qualitative information because that's where the heart of the story lies. So my statistics may say 1.5 million people were displaced, but a couple of stories of what that experience was for those people help explain the real human suffering that occurred. And I think that that piece is incredibly important. Statistics have a lot of suffering that can hide underneath them. And part of our job as statisticians is to make sure that that message um, isn't lost.
Jana, I wonder, you mentioned sort of working on on the crime, uh, the trial of Slobodan Milosevic, and I wonder if maybe you could take a minute to talk about what maybe some challenges are in ah. um, looking to gather data in the past, right? Because I know you've done some collection, uh, some survey methods, but I wonder if, if there are certain challenges as a statistician when you're looking to the past to figure out, you know, what can data tell us about human rights abuses? Sure. Well, one thing is, unless it's a very carefully designed data collection process. So Truth and Reconciliation Commission, their primary job is to get at the truth, but typically they do that in very qualitative, open-ended methods. Tell us your story. Then comes the statistician reading that, and there may be vital information missing for us to help understand the pattern of what happened over time, say. So if I don't have an exact day that uh, situation occurred, if I don't know where it occurred, if I don't know the gender of the people involved, if I don't know, you know, there can be details that are missing that when you're designing a questionnaire or a survey form, you you put in specific questions about those pieces because you know eventually you're going to need that demographic information in order to, to get at the heart of how it all pieces together. So that's one issue is that a lot of data might be missing. And I've seen, you know, Basically, the earlier the statisticians can be involved in the process, the less likely that will happen because we can help um, guide um, ways to collect the data that both allow the person to tell their story because that's incredibly important. Um, You don't want to treat this as, okay, name, you know, (laughs) gender, what happened, you know, that there's a a powerful story to be told and you don't want to inhibit that in any way. But you may need to follow up to get a few details um, that allow the statistics to be created later. So that's one issue. A second issue in some cases can be accessing information at all. So a lot of the work I've done has been after something has happened. I also was on the ground in Iraq in 2003, right after uh, Saddam Hussein's regime fell. And we were going around trying to collect information at that point. And some of the records just weren't there. We were able to talk to some people and get some testimonies. But typically, people who are committing massive human rights abuses aren't keeping detailed records on what's happening. And not only that, they may confiscate records from other people uh, that might have been keeping detailed information about what was happening. So that's another issue. Yeah. So as, as you were mentioning that, I was I was just trying to imagine just in a completely disrupted circumstance. I mean, you you know, you're describing this as where there are s- civil and political rights disruptions occurring. Mm-hmm. Just just the availability of data in this context, or even trying to think about designing some systematic way of collecting information where much may have been filtered, destroyed, or lost. I mean, I, I just, it seems just such like a huge, huge challenge. It, it is. Actually, it was the basis of my dissertation from Carnegie Mellon. Um, so uh, this is a funny story, which I don't think I've ever told anyone before, which was that um, I was starting to work on my dissertation work with Steve Feinberg, and I asked to take a year off because I wanted to get my son settled into a, I I was just getting married. I was a single mom in graduate school, which is a whole nother story. (laughs) But, um, and he, and I had a son with disabilities and I wanted to get him settled into a new area. I was getting married and moving. And I asked for a year off from school and I got him settled. But then this project came up where I had to um, go to Sierra Leone and it was supposed to be like six weeks to start. I ended up staying there many, many months, but it was supposed to be a six-week project, right? And it was to run this national um, survey um, to ascertain human rights violations that had occurred during the, the Sierra Leone armed internal conflict. 
so I went off to do that. And my dissertation advisor was laughing a little bit because he's like, I thought you were going to take care of your son. And all of a sudden you're on a plane to Sierra Leone. What is going on? I'm like, sorry about that. <laughs> so um, the project started in January of 2004. And I encountered the very issues you're talking about. Here I had a traumatized, multicultural, multilanguage, um, time illiterate, um, illiterate <laughs> population. And what I mean by time illiterate is that you know, we have a very um, structured sense of time in in our society. Um, we have our watches and we have things on Tuesdays and we have, you know, we have particular holidays. And so I was going to be asking a group of people about a 10-year conflict that worked on there was rainy season, there, there was dry season. Um, how was I going to get to the heart of what had happened, when it had happened, where it had happened, um, and do that in a way that was ethical because I didn't want to re-traumatize people. Right, oh. right. Right. So I had a huge job, and basically I was given a budget and carte blanche, and wow. I just reinvented things. I said, we're going to send counselors into the field because I don't want to be responsible for re-traumatizing people. We are going to do um, cognitive interviewing in seven different languages because I want to make sure I understand how this works. We are going to um, collect information about what happens with male versus female interviewers. We're going to use um, anchor events in order to figure out time. So there were certain events that happened in the war. Everybody knew when it happened. Like words, you know, when, when there was the invasion of Freetown, everybody knew about the invasion of Freetown when it happened, that sort of thing. And so we used those as anchor events to try to narrow down time periods when things happened. So I had to come up with all these ideas on the fly. And we did. I had this team of incredibly intelligent, bright people that were Sierra Leonean. And we specifically went and got people from different cultures and who had different language skills. And we sat down and we completely designed a survey from the ground up. Anyway, I send all what I'm doing off to my dissertation advisor. And he says, you know what, this is a dissertation. So when I was done, I came back, I wrote it up, and it was a dissertation. Um, it took me a little longer than that because the third piece I didn't get done until much later, which was to compare the results of, of the survey that I did to another um, estimation technique called multiple systems estimation that's often used in this context. But a bunch, like I'd say about two-thirds of my dissertation had to do with, you know, how do you pinpoint timing of events in these situations? Um, how do you... Um, work ethically with traumatized populations? Um, how do you deal when with it being a multicultural, multi-language situation, and how do you make sure you're asking the same question, you know, in all these different languages and so on? So yeah, it, it's hard. It's very hard. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Jana Asher about human rights and statistics. Jana, I know that you have done work around sexual violence, and as you're talking about this approach you took in Sierra Leone and how you were wanting to make sure you weren't re-traumatizing people, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you approach um, doing work around sexual violence, which again also has that, that possibility of, as people talk about their experiences, triggering them or re-traumatizing them and sort of maybe what your approach has been and what we can take as maybe best practices from that? That's a great question. And I actually started with some articles by Shana Swiss and Peggy Jennings. Um, they were two researchers that started working with communities um, attempting to learn about sexual violence that had occurred. And I really liked their approach because it was so respectful of those local communities. 
basically they worked with women in these cultures to understand what was the culturally appropriate way to talk about these issues. And because they had the buy-in of the local community, women did speak up and talk about what had happened. Um, and I felt like this made a lot of sense to me. And so when we went to work on um, asking about sexual violence in Sierra Leone, that was one of the first places that I started looking at sexual violence, uh, one of the things we did is we made no assumptions about the gender of the people that experienced the violence or that were perpetrators of the violence. And people thought we were a little crazy. <laughs> um, because we started getting back data that there had been female perpetrators and male victims. And when those data first started coming back, and I don't want to take Patrick Ball's name in vain at all because he's an amazing um, researcher, but he was a little disbelieving at the time. <laughs> I think he would even agree. Um, and so I went back to my interviewers. I was still in Sierra Leone and I said, did this really happen? And they, they verified that yes, they had talked to men that had experienced sexual violence and that there were women committing sexual violence. So that was an unusual situation, right? But it kind of indicates the success of this kind of working in partnership with local community and lo local cultural mores. And of course, we had very, very strict confidentiality protocols as well. Um, we did not want our data collection to you know, lead to anybody being killed or anybody being harmed in any way. And so we had a very, very strict, the, the team leaders for my teams had lock boxes. All the surveys were kept under lock and key. Um, there, you know, there, there, were, there were protocols that we followed to try to keep the data as, as safe as possible. And, and I think um, people knew that as well when we were talking mm -hmm. with them. But in later work, um, I started working with a researcher named, her name was Lynn Amowitz at the time. Um, she ended up getting remarried and became Lynn Lowry later. But uh, she actually reached out to me to ask if I would go to Iraq. So this was actually prior to Sierra Leone. Okay, I first started working on looking at systematic abuses in Iraq with, with Lynn Lowry, uh, once known as Lynn Amowitz. Um, then I ended up going to Sierra Leone, and then I ended up working with her again after that on specifically gender-based violence studies in different parts of Africa. And when I started working with her, and at that point I had been with her long enough that I could get involved in the questionnaire design process, I said, we need to not assume anything about the, the gender of the people involved in, in these um, situations of sexual violence, and she agreed to that. And that led to a study in Liberia where the main message was that men were experiencing this gender-based violence specifically in conflict situations, that that was a, a technique of war, and that women were involved as perpetrators, and that was also a technique of war. We were the first people to come out and and you know, do that study and kind of break that that myth and that stereotype. And we were incredibly proud. We, we, we looked at it at the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We looked at it in Liberia. And we were both incredibly proud when the Human Development Report finally um, said that money needed to be put aside to for rehabilitation for men that experienced gender-based violence in war. So yeah, I mean, we've dealt with some very serious, traumatic issues in the field. And Again, you know, in terms of ethically, you need to have counselors with you, especially in developing countries where you can't just give somebody a list of names of local counselors to go seek. <laughs> um, you need to be incredibly careful with the data. And you need to be incredibly protective of your interviewers because they're also in dangerous situations um, when they're doing these interviews in a lot of cases. Um, so I don't know if that answers all of your questions, but that's kind of my take on it. That's great. Uh, you know, I as I, as I looked at some of the design and, and the stuff that you were reporting, 
I was I was really struck with with just how responsive the people the 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 response rates that you had the, to to the work that you were doing. I mean, and you know, you're you're you were investigating major depressive disorders and post traumatic <laughs> stress among these communities, along with some of the the other outcomes that you described. You know, yes. can, can you talk a little bit about why do you think there was such such engagement? With the the researchers, I mean, I, I I really think it's it's laudable the this this kind of proactive way that you were thinking about sending counselors and engaging in that way, and also the sensitivity to language and and kind of meeting meeting people where they are in terms of, of their ability to respond and their needs. But it just I, I was just really struck by just how responsive everyone was. Yeah. Well, in Sierra Leone, we actually had an advanced team. So when I had this group of incredibly intelligent young people that I was working with, and they explained the political structure of Sierra Leone to me, it's a chief-based structure. So we went and got the permissions from the head chiefs before we went out to local communities. And then we asked the chief themselves, you know, was it okay to, to interview? And I think that is a step that I hope um, humanitarian organizations are getting better about, but you really need to the only way I can be of help to somebody is if I have something to offer them and they have a need where they'd like my help. Um, it's got to be a, a mutual respect and a partnership or it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me to come in and say, oh, I want to do this survey and it's really going to help you. That doesn't make sense at all. And so when I sat down, I said, OK, what do what do you think you guys need to collect data wise? Who do we need to talk to in order to be able to? Um, get buy-in from local communities and so on, and they told me, and that's what we did. Um, so that's one piece of it, is just, I think if you approach things with some humility and some respect for whom you're talking with, uh, then then hopefully they'll be respectful of what you're trying to accomplish, and you can accomplish good things together. Uh, so that's one piece. The other piece is that I think there is, amongst groups that have experienced massive human rights violations, they want the truth to come out because a lot of times there's disinformation by governments about what's really going on in the country. And it's, it's incredibly disempowering to have, you know, say this is happening and to have somebody in authority say, no, it's not. <laughs> that's not really what's happening. And so, I mean, that's the power of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right, is to get the truth on record. And I think for a lot of these surveys, it's about getting the truth on record, you know, this is happening. Jana, what advice would you have for journalists who are covering these stories? Because we do. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, I think we want to do so with care for the people we're reporting on. But I'm sure given your experiences in the field, you have some thoughts for things that journalists could probably be doing better when it cover comes to covering these stories. Oh. Well, that that's a can of worms. Um if you're talking about just working in transitional countries and war zones in general, I think what I would say is keep an open mind and be respectful of local culture. And I'm going to give you an example. And I know I'm going back to Sierra Leone a lot because that was the one place I lived. Um, I've, I've worked on other surveys in other places, but I, I lived in Sierra Leone for months. And I actually did not get along with the most of the expats very well. Expat stands for expatriate, stands for somebody that's coming into the country from a, from a different place. And the expats in, in many developing countries will form kind of their own society. And the problem with that is that they're interacting with each other and then they're making assumptions about the culture of the local community that may not be accurate or true. So the example I'll give is that it, 
is pretty, at least at that point, it was pretty traditional in Sierra Leone for a boss to extend loans of money to an employee if it was needed, because there is no insurance, or at least at that point, there was very little you could do in terms of getting medical insurance for people. School cost money, medicine cost money, doctors cost money. And so if you had somebody working for you, there was a very good chance that at some point they were going to have a desperate need for more money than you usually pay them. And, and so it was just kind of understood. It was more like a, like a medieval feudal system than, than employment in the United States, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I picked up on that pretty quickly. And, and so with my employees, um, they understood that I would cover the medical costs, for instance, if they had a family member um, that got sick. And I sure as heck would cover the medical costs if anything happened to them in the field. The expat community did not feel like I did. They would complain about employees asking them for loans and how dare they ask us for loans and, you know, and just not understand what was happening in terms of a mismatch of culture. And so I think for reporters specifically, when you're looking at you can when you're looking at what's going on, you can hear one story from people that are from your culture. And if you're not careful, it's going to look just like they say. But if you actually stay in the culture long enough to understand kind of the the norms of that culture, um, you may discover that it's a completely different story than you thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was thinking, Rosemary, when, when uh, Jana was talking earlier, as she, as she described this idea of the statistics have suffering that lie underneath them. So, Jana, yeah. that, that, that statement and the idea of, of, of kind of the, the story that might be, the stories that might help, you know, flesh out one, as you said, one and a half million people that are displaced, that that kind of magnitude doesn't resonate. But perhaps the the story of of the individual cases that you were saying in the qualitative mm-hmm. representations, I thought that oh, was really I, nice. I, I think the reporters are incredibly important for that. Sometimes you're the first folks on the scene to say this is what's really going on. And I have read, you know, I, I I'm a member of Amnesty International, I get the reports, and there have been plenty of reporters that have gotten into some very serious situations um, out there. It takes some bravery to be a reporter in this kind of situation, so I can only applaud them for their work. I, you know, so one of the things that, that we, we sometimes ask our, our guests, our visitors to the, the podcast is, if, if people would like to get involved in this kind of work, you know, if, if you have if you have journalists or statisticians or anyone that's that's interested in engaging in human rights and in particular the analysis of data associated with it, what, what kind of advice or recommendations might you give? You know, I, I've actually had many people over the years approach me about this question. And um, my first advice is don't just jump in. Learn a little bit more about what you're getting yourself into. I made a lot of mistakes when I first started doing this type of work. Um, I made cultural faux pas. Um, I made assumptions I shouldn't have. I mean, some of these lessons I'm talking about were, were lessons learned over time um, with experience. So have somebody that mentors you in this process. So that's piece one. So for instance, right now, there's a group called Statistics Without Borders. Um, they're a volunteer group within um, the American Statistical Association. They're an outreach group. And there are people there that have been doing this work for a while and can help mentor you to talk about what the challenges are, what you need to think about in terms of multicultural communication, and so on. Um, so that's, that's thing one. Um, 
I, I don't want to give Patrick Ball's um, organization away because, um, you know, they're a very serious research organization. I don't think they could take on tons of volunteers. And that's why I'm recommending a group like Statistics Without Borders first. Um, so that's piece one. Piece two is make sure, do, do a mental health check on yourself and make sure you're healthy to do this and that you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, I actually experienced some uh, secondary trauma in the work I've done. And for people who don't know what secondary trauma is, um, this is this is a concept that's very common um, for people in social work, that when you're surrounded by stories that are, are hard, hard, traumatic stories, you can start um, gaining um, or basically experiencing some of the same post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms as the people that experienced these, these bad stories in the first place. And so I actually was caught unawares of that happening and for two years was having those symptoms before I finally found out what was going on. Um, so make sure that you're mentally healthy, that you're ready for this, but also that, you know, this is hard stuff. And if you're going to, you know, get the help if you need it, you know, if you start having nightmares, if you start um, having panic attacks, um, that can happen. Um, and, and don't be ashamed of that because this is a common phenomenon um, in this kind of work. So, Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Jana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really wonderful to hear you talk about your work. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.